welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Ann Bartow and Ryan Vacca, both professors of law at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. We will discuss their new article, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Copyright Jurisprudence. So Ann, Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Shortly after Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, passed, uh, which was so devastating for so many reasons from, you know, the political to the the personal, because she was, you know, personally an idol for so many women, especially women lawyers. And she, uh, you know, litigated for us before she joined first the D.C. Circuit and then the Supreme Court. So processing that loss is really hard uh, for, for many of us, for me uh, included. And then uh, someone out of the blue, Professor Baca, Ryan, my colleague, just down the hall when we're in the building, um, just called me up and said, hey, what do you think about writing, you know, getting together and writing an essay about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's copyright law jurisprudence, which I never would have thought of, and it was an incredible idea. I think initially we thought we were just going to write like a 15-page essay having some, you know, kind of thoughts, superficial thoughts about the whole thing. But once we started writing, I think we really challenged each other to really like think hard about the cases and think hard about things that we were seeing and uh, we worked on it pretty hard, probably for every hour I put in, Ryan put in three, but I still work pretty hard on it. Um, and so with that, I'll turn it over to him. Yeah, thanks. It's, it's been a fun uh, project to work on, uh, really getting to, to dig in deep to what Justice Ginsburg has done you know, during her, her career with respect to copyright law, because you know, she's so well, uh, so well known and regarded for her gender equality work that the other areas that she impacted sort of get overlooked. And, uh, you know, copyright was really one of those areas that we, I think initially both Anne and I knew that she had made, uh, you know, significant contributions uh, looking at, you know, the the doctrinal shifts and things that she had done, um, but never really looked at it holistically to see like, you know, what, what was going on here? What's what's really the the story behind um, all of her copyright cases and the impact that uh, that she's had? And so it was really a lot of fun, kind of digging in and getting to know uh, both Justice Ginsburg, um, not, not personally, of course, but just getting to know her as a uh, as a person, but also as a jurist. Um, it was it was really enlightening. I, I have a new um, sort of a, a newfound respect for her her opinions now that I read them and I say, ah, you know, I. When I read them before, you know, I've met, read them many, many times, uh, you know, before I you know, taught the case in class. But now I, I look at them a little bit differently. Well, so you're both intellectual property scholars whose work I've admired for for a long time. Um, so it makes sense that you would write about Justice, Justice Ginsburg's copyright uh, jurisprudence, given that that's in your field of, of expertise. Are there other reasons to be interested in her in her copyright jurisprudence and sort of what's the sort of conventional wisdom on Justice Ginsburg in, in relation to copyright specifically? She, I, I don't think I have to make that kind of obvious point that she's viewed as a very liberal justice, um, especially she, she didn't get more liberal, but it looked like she was getting more liberal as the Supreme Court kept moving to the right. Um, so what we found really interesting was like, I think the liberal take generally on copyright is a low barriers one that a weaker copyright you know leads to more creativity and less duress and stress and empowers authors more in the long run so um it was just interesting to us that that justice ginsburg's take on so many cases she tended to favor kind of 
the big corporation, the big content owners over the, the smaller, you know, distributors or smaller the authors in certain cases. And I think she, she actually had it wrote enough opinions and, and also if we could look at our voting pattern that we, I think we had a pretty strong sense. I, mean, we, we, I think we're fairly confident in some of our conclusions. I would, I would also add, you know, the, I think that the common story behind Justice Ginsburg's copyright jurisprudence, the one that you, you, know, you read about after her death, um, you know, some of the, the uh, IP news articles that came out would say, you know, oh, she was you know, beloved by the, you know, the recording industry or beloved by the film industry because she, you know, she was a champion of, uh, of content owners, like, like Anne said. Um, and I think that the thought really was that, that she was sort of you know, pro-copyright or pro-copyright owner or pro-author and really, um, you know, really never found in favor or very frequently found in favor of accused infringers. And you know, as we as we discovered during the process, you know, that it's probably true to a certain extent, but it's not as overwhelming as uh, people have made it out to be. It's it's actually a lot more balanced when you look at the whole picture. So one of the things I thought was really interesting about the paper was the way that you sort of place Justice Ginsburg's copyright jurisprudence in relation to the kind of broader intellectual project that she was she was engaged in. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of those kind of bigger picture principles that you think sort of characterized her work in general and how you see them reflected in her copyright work specifically. Yeah, so we, during our research, we, we identified sort of four themes that we saw, some four jurisprudential themes that we saw running through uh, her her cases, her opinions. Um, and so, and that also, as you mentioned, sort of tied into her sort of broader, uh, broader jurisprudence. So the first one is incrementalism, right? She, she was trying to move the law slowly, um, didn't want to move too fast. Right? The second was what we call intergovernmental deference, um, which is looking at having a conversation with the other branches, uh, whether it be Congress uh, or the president or um, more likely the administrative agencies, the copyright office, um, U.S. trade representative, stuff like that. The And, and for, for both of those, for both incrementalism and for intergovernmental uh, deference, there's you know, a couple different varieties of that that we, we flesh out. The, the third strand that we saw was what we call it seeking alternatives, looking at um, when, when trying to come up with the, you know, the solution to the problem or at least minimize the concerns that you know, perhaps her colleagues on the other side uh, had, had come up with, she looks to alternatives to say like, well, yeah, look at these other um, sort of legal or extra legal uh, aspects of either copyright law or, or otherwise that can be used to minimize some of these concerns. And then finally, um, we saw that there was sort of a strand of stoicism uh, in her in her copyright cases in, in general um, on the court uh, that slowly shifted from uh, sort of from stoicism in the in the all the parts of that that then shifted over into sort of an anger that doesn't really manifest itself so much in copyright uh, the pop copyright cases uh, but it it does uh, rear its head every once in a while. Well, so I'll take the prerogative then because it's a, a subject I'm personally interested in. 
in uh, to kind of dig a little deeper into this question of intergovernmental deference. So there's a recent Supreme Court decision, really one of the last ones she wrote in a Fourth Estate v. Wall Street com involving a subject matter of interest to only the most esoteric of copyright enthusiasts, uh, copyright registration. And it was actually kind of an outlier from Ginsburg's sort of big picture copyright jurisprudence insofar as it was considerably less favorable to uh, copyright owners than some of her other opinions were. I wonder if you could talk about that case a little bit, sort of how you think it reflects her thoughts about the relationship between the court and other government entities, specifically agencies. Um, and then also, um, I really like the way that you, you, you picked up her, her decision in the odds-on case and, and talked about that as well. And I thought that was really helpful and illuminating. So, so maybe kind of do what you can to bring all those trends together for me. So I guess I'll take a step at it quickly. So the fourth state and the idea of registration. So uh, Ryan didn't mention um, institutional capacity, which I want to make sure I talk about because I, uh, I have something fun, actually pretty funny to say about that um, that happened last time I presented this paper. Uh, but um, there's also some formalism, I think. We didn't really tease that out, but I, I, I wonder if my, if my thoughts are perhaps a, a streak of formalism somewhat explains that, that you want to have all your everything filed in good time that everyone can refer back to and dot the I's. And um, that doesn't seem out of character to me. And, you know, she, and she does find for author sometimes we definitely, you know, she, she definitely considered each case very carefully, I think. With, with respect to fourth estate. Yeah. The, with the intergovernmental uh, deference, it, it is, you know, sort of pick up on what Anne said about the institutional capacity issue. Um, that's really a, a great example of that. So, you know, what we talk about with institutional capacity is to say like Justice Ginsburg recognized that courts have, you know, limited powers, right? They're, you know, she builds on Hamilton, you know, like everybody does these days, and, and says, uh, you know, like, you know, courts have, uh, you know, courts don't have the, the power of the purse uh, like Congress, and they can't, you know, actually execute the judgments like the, like the executive. So this is, you know, we're, we're a little bit hamstrung here. Uh, and there's things that we just can't do. We, we just don't have, either can't do it um, sort of just as a matter of, you know, just, that's, we don't, that's not what we do, or um, we don't have the expertise to be able to do it. And so re the registration issue in Fourth Estate is really a great example of that because, um, you, I mean, some of the concerns that were raised was like, oh, well, if you, know, if you don't register in time, then you might, um, you know, the statute of limitations might pass, and this is going to be harmful to, to copyright owners. The, and, and there's a there's a long backlog uh, at the copyright office. The registration process takes you know I think at the time it was like seven months. And um, you know she digs into you know, some of the the legislative history about it. And, and uh, you know at the time registration went a lot quicker, and so it wasn't as big of a deal. And her her opinion eventually she gets to the point where she says you know look the copyright office might be taking a long time. But, the, you know, if, if you have a problem with that, if, if that's the, the major impediment to making this registration process work, um, you're at the wrong door, right? You, you go to Congress and tell them to 
give the copyright office more money so they can hire more uh, copyright attorneys, right? And and that will solve the problem. We we're the court. We can't we can't make the copyright office examine any faster. <laughs> and so um, you know that was a I thought a nice example of the institutional uh, capacity. Yeah, and along those lines, every time the court was going to be asked to do something, uh, like for example, Tassini, uh, any case involving like numbers or royalties, uh, she had you know this institutional capacity concern would arise, and so I was trying to express that when I was talking about this paper, and uh, just to sort of make it kind of humorous, I said, yeah, so so Justice Ginsburg kind of looks around, and says, Justice Breyer, where's your economics degree from? And without missing a beat, Mark Lemley said, Oxford. He has an economics degree from Oxford. Well, so one thing that struck me particularly in relation to that conversation around Ginsburg's appreciation for institutional capacity was also a kind of, at least I felt reflected in the way you described her jurisprudence, kind of real meaningful attentiveness to what the agencies actually do on the ground, how they actually work, and the kinds of choices and decisions that you're making. And so in some cases, it seems like the opinions are quite deferential to the agency and kind of respecting the agency's decision-making process in cases like Forest Estate or in her DC circuit odds-on case where she deferred to the to the copyright office's decision as to whether or not uh, work would be registrable in the first case but um but the, another, the Atari, yeah, actually the Atari case is like hilarious because yeah. she sends it to the copyright office is like I think this is copyright like no one does not like, are you sure here it is back no we still don't think so try one more time <laughs> yeah so I was going to ask you about that like I mean it's it's a it's a it's a it's a very unusual sort of setup and like what do you think that says about kind of her bigger picture perspective well she's definitely a strong copyright person I mean I think that just reflects her you know, she'll take originality and fixation at their at their very feisty and level, and uh, start you know go from there. Well, I would also say that in the opinions, it does in the Atari cases, even though she does like keep remanding back to the copyright office saying try again, it's interesting that she also like she doesn't tell them and do do it this way, right? In, in all of the opinions, she. Um, I mean, she she says, you know, we're going to remand it back. Um, and I mean, she strongly hints that, you know, at least after the second time, that this is original enough um, that you know, it meets the standard. But, you know, she, she doesn't necessarily come out and say it. So she really is sort of, you know, serving this kind of reserve or serving in this reserved role of, you know, we're going to we're going to still give it to you. Maybe you'll come up with some other reason why it's not registrable. Um, but, you know, you're, you're sort of striking out both times here <laughs> on this ground, you know, try again, if you can come up with a different ground uh, for it, great. Or if you can at least articulate why it doesn't meet the originality threshold, um, then, you know, maybe you have got something there. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to judge you on it, uh, literally. <laughs> um, but we're going to, uh, you know, we'll give you that shot. As opposed to odds on what you had mentioned earlier, where, you know, she is actually deferential to the copyright office on that, on that issue, you know, especially when it comes to like separability, you know, there's a huge circuit split that's not resolved until she's later on the court. Um, you know, it's, it's 20, 25 years later. Um, and it actually probably didn't even resolve it actually. <laughs> um, 
but the fact that she uh, that she sends it back and, and says, you know, like, you know, we're, we're really not going to uh, intervene here. We don't have to answer this question. We're going to defer to the Copyright Office uh, on this uh, on this issue of separability. I think really exemplified her both her, you know, her restraint um, and and the deference that she shows to the other parts of the government. As you're describing it, I, I, I just had a thought I hadn't really thought of before, which is she takes almost a let's not decide the constitutional issues unless we have to kind of approach, right? So we have to in Atari because they just won't get it, but we don't have to do it in odds on because they seem to be on the right path. So in your paper, you, you sort of acknowledge that there's a conventional wisdom out there about Justice Ginsburg's copyright jurisprudence or kind of her bigger picture perspective normatively on on copyright and you know ideas about where it might come from or something like that but suggested those maybe are somewhat a little facile and not very helpful in understanding uh what she was doing and why she was doing it i wonder if you could if you could talk a little bit about that because i i do think that there's a way in which you know people maybe don't think as big picture as they could uh, and sort of think about what she was doing in a copyright context as maybe more explained by what she was doing in other contexts than by any kind of particular, you know, commitments that she had to, to authorship or to the idea of copyright. Well, I could talk about incrementalism because that kind of answers your question at least sideways, <laughs> if not directly, um, is that, you know, she took the very incrementalist approach to reproductive rights litigation, among other things. And in some ways, I, you know, she, I have so much respect for her and she, you know, she just did so much for women with all of that. But it, she almost didn't get on the Supreme Court because of her incrementalism. When she was being questioned after Clinton had nominated her, a lot of women's groups were really worried because she had criticized Roe v. Wade um, on different grounds than conservatives would criticize it, but because it was so unincremental, because it was, just, you know, like so sudden, like a bombshell. And she'd been critical of that in print and, 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 you know, when she was a professor. And so they were really concerned about her commitment to it. But she, you know, explained, which I think we all understand now, she had a very good commitment to it. She just, the approach was troubling to her. But I, I say in the paper, you say in the paper, and I wonder still if we didn't have Roe v. Wade, if, if abortion would ever have gotten legalized that I think what we my, I guess my perspective is that we needed the bomb because that was the only way it was going to work you know and I grew up in New York kind of during those times where New, New York abortion was legal before Roe v. Wade so kind of watching it from that perspective was really kind of an interesting thing too so she talks about you know and a, a lot of things um the Lily Ledbetter case when she was so upset when uh, the Supreme Court decided you know against Lily Ledbetter and then Congress decided to pick it up that sort of exact, you know, that it wasn't what she intended. She was hoping to get the Supreme Court to drop a minor bomb in that case, actually. <laughs> that would have been a bit of a bomb. But to try to get the court to, uh, when she couldn't get the court convinced that she was able to get it through Congress and achieve the same ends in a, in a better way, really, probably, um, what she said, in a better way through Congress and an act that's, you know, harder to disrupt. Because if it just been the court's decision, you're just like one one sitting justice away from losing it again. Uh, so I think that was a great triumph. And so she would probably look at the, that's a big success of incrementalism. You know, and so Brian, to, to answer the question about sort of the explanations for Justice Ginsburg's copyright jurisprudence um, that, that don't really seem to, to hold much water, um, or at least 
certainly questionable. I mean, the, the two common explanations um, are that, you know, she had this very well-known love of, of opera and, and art. And a lot of people use that as the basis for explaining why she was, you know, pro-copyright, why she was you know, strong copyright. Um, and uh, Anne and I, we, we, we really weren't persuaded by that because for, for you know, a couple of reasons, one of which is that like, you know, there are other justices who have <laughs> appreciation for creative endeavors. You know, like we said, you know, Justice Breyer, for example, like he has a great love of literature and um, he, he's the one who's sort of most opposite Justice Ginsburg on copyright issues. And so we, we found that kind of strange that, to be able to, to say like, you know, oh, sure, she's, she's really pro-copyright because, you know, one of her favorite you know, leisure time activities uh, is, you know, has a, has a connection to copyright. That, that just didn't seem very uh, fathomable to us. Um, especially given somebody who's as principled as Justice Ginsburg is or was. Um, and so that didn't really seem to, to make much sense to us. The other, which is, is harder to test, is uh, obviously her daughter, or, you know, our, our colleague, um, uh, uh, Jane Ginsburg, professor at Columbia Law School, who, who's a you know a heavyweight in the in the copyright world, and I don't think it's a big secret that Jane Ginsburg uh, also has a very you know, sort of pro copyright pro author uh, view, and so I, there's you know some speculation that uh, sort of Jane's role and and knowledge of copyright and view on copyright maybe influenced Justice Ginsburg. And you know, there's really no way to know um, exactly how much influence you know, they had on each other. We looked at sort of how frequently uh, Justice Ginsburg cited Jane, and you know, there's only like four instances. We recognize this isn't a very good uh, measure of how uh, how influential uh, you know, writings are or people are. Um, yeah, there's lots of times uh, law professors' works are you know there are law review articles are read, but they're never cited, um, and they they play a role. So um, it's not a great measure, and you know, of course, we'll we'll never know. Uh, but go, going back to how principled Justice Ginsburg was, it it, um, it seems unlikely that uh, you know she would be sort of swayed, uh, unduly swayed by by Jane's scholarship, um, and so that's what really caused us to to want to look deeper and say, you know, like neither of those two explanations are. are really compelling. What else is there? What's going on? And then so that ties back to what Anne was saying earlier about incrementalism. Like that's something that cuts across a lot of her, um, a lot of areas, you know, most, most notably the, the gender equality, but it, it raises, uh, it's raised in other areas as well. Um, and so we see that, and that seems to us to be, you know, incrementalism and the intergovernmental deference and all that, all the themes we've identified seem to be much better explanations as to why she did what she did in the copyright cases, as opposed to like, she loves, she loves opera. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, two of the criticisms I've heard about our paper <laughs> so far um, is some people think are actually too easy on her in terms of a, the negative impact she may have had in copyright with some of her opinions, which I, I, you know, Ryan actually sent the paper to Jane Ginsburg and I thought, you know, I hope she's tough. She's not going to, you know, we could be deeply critical. I think it would have been fine with her. 
but I did think about that, you know, she's just lost her mom and, you know, how would it feel? But I, I think we try to be really fair about that because I do think the explanation is much deeper. I do, Ryan's children are much smaller. I have a 29 year old with a PhD in genomics and computational biology. And I'd ask him anything. He's the smartest person I know. And he would have, his thinking would have a profound opinion. I'll just say right now, you know, if you start talking about that stuff, I've asked my son about it and probably followed his advice. So I don't, I don't, we're not trying to be judgmental to the extent we think Jane had an impact on it. Jane's, you know, brilliant. She's, she's somebody everybody knows. She's done a lot of writing. And if she did have an influence, that's, you know, to me, that's stays the course. What I also wanted to get back to is, um, uh, there's kind of a precedent we, we just touched on. Uh, Brian brought up the fact that she and Briar tended to be at opposite poles all the time. And they're really the two who probably most knew the most about copyright, Justice Ginsburg, because she'd heard a lot of cases and she could consult her, her daughter. And then uh, Breyer, who had been a copyright law professor and written an article, you know, had gotten a lot of traction a long time ago. Uh, so it's interesting that they were polar opposites. And uh, a couple of points about that. One is that it had precedent, that if you remember in the Sony case, which is at least the second most important copyright opinion ever, not the first, I came up with Rose maybe, but at least tied, Marshall and Brennan split. Marshall and Brennan were on different sides of Sony, which was like maybe the only time they almost never split. And yet copyright split them apart. So then you have Ginsburg and Breyer, both liberal justice and copyright splitting them apart too. And as I love to point out, in, in one time, um, Justice Breyer cited Jane Ginsburg against Justice Ginsburg because uh, he was trolling her on something where they were on opposite sides, uh, which is pretty funny. But then the last case, the last time they, um, the last copyright case, Georgia versus public resources, Ginsburg dissent is totally typical. I expected her to dissent, but I was shocked with the fact that Breyer joined her instead of opposing that. I was just shocked. I think that comes across, both of us were surprised by that. And I, I can't help but personalize it and think, you know, he loved her and he knew she, she was dying. So I, I, I don't think he would overtly say that. I don't think that would have been a conscious thing, but you know, subconsciously, who knows? Well, so from a kind of copyright scholarship world perspective, I think the elephant in the room when it comes to Ginsburg's copyright jurisprudence is Eldred V. Ashcroft. Oh, and God. Then, and yes. then maybe to a lesser extent, Golan, Golan oh, the older. Yeah. Um, so I, mean, I, I wonder what you think, because I mean, those opinions have come in for an awful lot of, of criticism. Um, and yet it seems to me that on some level they can be described or kind of justified or understood in light of the intergovernmental deference observation that you make. Um, maybe not entirely, but at least in part. Um, and so, I mean, I wonder what you would say to people who were critical of Justice Ginsburg on that front, and how, I mean, how should we think about those opinions sort of in relation to the way the Supreme Court jurisprudence has copy, on copyright has kind of historically developed? Because, I mean, especially when it comes to Eldred, I mean, I think it's not just about the duration of the term. It's really about a fundal, fundamental way of, of thinking about what copyright is for and what it does. Yeah, I think the most, to me, at least when it came down, the most shocking part of Eldred was the retroactivity. Like, I really thought they were going to whack that. I really did. I thought that would come with more criticism, the idea of incentivizing dead people by reaching back and adding on to copyright. It's just a deadweight loss, basically, in terms of incentives and, you know, the prime directive of copyright law. 
So I was pretty shocked by that. Um, I, you know, of course, I guess nobody was really surprised by going after Eldred, although I was surprised she, they had to ride both of them. I was a little bit surprised about that. And I kind of wondered if she'd request it. What do you think, Ryan? Well, so I think that the, um, I, I disagreed initially with, with Eldred. Um, and perhaps I still do. I, I haven't. I haven't made up my mind. Um, and the, the retroactivity uh, point was was really what what struck me. I know because I was a let's see, Eldred was in two thousand, yeah, early two thousand. So I, I was in law school at the time, and uh, when it came out, and so I remember thinking like, this is absurd. Uh, and but one of the things that I that I've sort of recognize during this process of, of writing the article is, is trying, trying to look at it from a, you know, what, what was she doing? What was going on here? And the, the intergovernmental deference point and really the, the sort of the institutional capacity version of this is really, uh, really where I, I think it, where, where she was coming from, because what she was trying to do, I think, is to say, look, you know, Congress gets to set the duration and we can't say, you know, we're the court, right? We, we can't say what's too long or what's too short or, you know, whatever it is. Like that's, it's a policy matter. We have to send this, we have to send this to Congress. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's, there's good arguments to be made that especially on the retroactivity point to say like, well, you know, if we look at the whole IP clause, like we're trying to incentivize authors um, to create, then this doesn't really do it. But, you know, Congress had, they had witnesses um, and they had this history of extending the Copyright Act as, you know, as she details in Eldred. And so, you know, given all of that and sort of the, the court's reluctance to say, you know, we don't really want to second guess Congress because if we start down that road, we're going to be asked to second guess on all sorts of things that, um, that, you know, basically have to do with numbers <laughs> and we, you know, we don't want to do the numbers. That's, yeah. that's a, that's a policy issue that to me showed, you know, her, her restraint and, you know, it, it did give a lot of, a lot of deference to Congress. I mean, effectively Congress can do whatever it wants and uh, on copyright duration, as long as they don't say perpetual, and yeah. you know, and and that may be that may be a really bad decision to have you know life plus two hundred or life plus you know a thousand. Um, but you know, as she says in the opinion, like we're not here to say that you know we we're not here to say like it's good or bad policy. We're just saying you know has it gone too far? Um, and uh, you know, if Congress wants to make dumb decisions, like. It can, right? Um, we we don't have the capacity to to do really any better, um, and you know, and I think that's part of the debate between her and, and Breyer uh, is that you know, I, I think Justice Breyer thinks, well, you know, we actually can do a little better. We we do have some tools here, um, and right, you no know, lobbyists. We don't have at least overt lobbyists hanging over us. Yeah, we, I mean, in the in the case, there was a lot of you know evidence that was provided that was trying to give the court the tools to do so. So, you know, I don't know. Like I said, I'm sort of on the fence about Eldred now. Um, I, I think that there are there are good reasons why um, Justice Ginsburg was exercising this restraint and and sort of leaning on the incapacity. But at the same time, um, I, I do understand. Justice Breyer's point of like, yeah, but we actually do have some of these tools that were given to us and we could we could evaluate it. Maybe not as well as Congress, 
but we do have some way of doing it. Yeah, I, I teach fundamentals of IP, and I um, to me, the case that's most arresting is the Chakrabarty case. It's a patent case where they decided that life was patentable because the conservative justices said, we want Congress to step in, but um, uh, the default should be it's patentable until Congress says it's not. And then the four liberal justices, are you kidding us? It has never been, a hundred years of president life has never been patentable. Let's wait till Congress gives us the green light. And, you know, I can argue that the liberals got it right, but if, if the conservatives hadn't done what they had done, I think we would have missed the biotech uh, revolution because for Congress to get the courage to weigh in on whether life or not should be patentable hasn't happened in the 40 some years since Shocker Barty, and I'm not expecting it anytime soon. So I think that probably trickles down into some other IP thinking generally. The other thing that's interesting with what Ryan said, I'm sorry, I know he wants to talk, but um, when you're talking, it's like, it's kind of funny in a way around Eldred, because on the one hand, we're saying she credits institutional capacity, but she really does say in Eldred that it's a dumb decision. <laughs> So it's kind of ironic. I'm sorry, I'm good. Yeah, no, no. And I was actually going to build on your Chakrabarty your point. Um, because you know, when we were, uh, we circulated a draft, and one of the comments that we got back was uh, about Justice Ginsburg's incrementalism. And it wasn't, it, it was from somebody who wasn't in the IP field, they were in the, the criminal uh, procedure field. And uh, this professor said, you know, I was actually, he said, yeah, I understand what you were saying about, about uh, incrementalism. And she does the same thing in criminal procedure. It actually really bothers me how how incremental she was in the criminal procedure context. And you know, so when Anne and I were talking about it, we actually we thought, you know, it, it is kind of interesting. Like when you think about incrementalism, and it was you know largely driven from her experience as a litigator on gender equality issues, and it makes a lot of sense. It, you know, you're trying to shift in you know half the country's uh, way of thinking about gender, uh, or, you know, more than half the country sometimes. And, um, and so that, that makes some sense, right? You're trying to convince, you know, nine male justices on the Supreme Court that uh, women should be treated the same as men. And with copyright, we don't have that same sort of history, right? We, we don't have, you know, we don't think of like copyright as, a, as you know, working in some way, you know, it, it, we, we just don't have that, that sort of long and tortured history as, uh, as gender discrimination does. And so, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, something interesting to think about is to, yeah, she had this incrementalist view um, that cut across many subject areas, but was it really necessary? Could she have been a little bolder in the copyright context? Um, and, you know, we don't know. It's a, sort of a thought experiment, but it's something that, that uh, it doesn't seem as justified in the copyright world. In closing, this article is part of a bigger project. So I wonder if you could just briefly tell people a little bit about the bigger project and, and what you're looking at. So in addition to having the article idea, Ryan also had the idea that uh, it might be really fun to do an edited collection and get people to weigh in on her jurisprudence in other subject areas. So we could have a, a volume of, you know, her on criminal procedure and environmental law. Indian law, I'm told, is going to paint a picture somewhat like copyright law with some liberals very disappointed, voting rights, and just to kind of connect everything. So um, Ryan has already been um, drafted a book proposal, which I need to <laughs> contribute to soon. Um, yeah. And so we're seeking stuff. If anyone listening wants to send us an abstract, just email us an abstract, we'd be happy to consider it. Great. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for coming on the program.
Thanks a lot. It was a lot of fun.